You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. All right, all right. Psalm chapter 8. We are journeying through the Psalms, and this is one of my very, one of my favorite Psalms. It's a, it's a well-known psalm. It's a popular psalm. You'll recognize some things when we read this psalm. But look there with me. Psalm chapter 8. The Bible says, To the choir master according to the gittith, which is another musical term or liturgical term, a psalm of David. It reads, starting in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and with honor." You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so we find ourselves again in the Psalms. This is a collection of Hebrew hymns. They remind us that we should trust God in good times and in bad times, and these psalms connect with us at an emotional level. And so that's why we love the psalms so much. And Psalm 8 is a powerful psalm, not a very long psalm, uh, but notice a couple of things. First of all, notice that the first verse and the last verse are exactly the same. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's a, a poetic device called inclusio, where you Uh, use the same statement, sort of parentheses, around the rest of the poem. And it's meant to to emphasize uh, what you find there at the beginning and the end. This is about the majesty of God. That's what this uh, psalm is about. And and notice how it starts, O Lord, our Lord. And just notice, and I kind of point this out because it really will help you with your Bible reading. Notice that the first word, Lord, is all capital letters. The second one is capital L, but lowercase o-r-d. Whenever you see all capital letters, the, the, the title Lord in the Old Testament, it is the translation of the divine name of God, the name he gave to Moses at the burning bush. We don't know exactly how it's pronounced because in the original uh, Hebrew writings, all we, have, all we had was consonants. And so the consonants of the divine name of God are Y-H-W-H. Some people think that's probably pronounced something like Yahweh. So when you hear Yahweh, you're hearing an attempt at someone pronouncing the divine name of God. When the Latin got involved and they translated the Hebrew into Latin, they pronounced this uh, term Jehovah. And that's the Latin 
pronunciation of the divine name. So we don't know exactly how it's pronounced, but that's the divine name of God, the God, the name that God revealed himself by. The second use of the word Lord, capital L and then lowercase o-r-d, is the term Adonai. And that's just the general term for Lord or for master or for ruler. And so he's saying, O Lord, O Yahweh, our master, our Lord, our ruler. So pretty cool way to address the Lord. And, and again, uh, I've kind of tried to kind of, kind of parenthetically give you some prayer tips and some prayer prompts. This is a, this is a really um, powerful way to address God. So maybe in your prayer time tomorrow morning, Start by saying, O Yahweh, my Lord, or O Yahweh, my King, or O Yahweh, my Ruler, and, and, and use those terms to, to address um, God when you are talking to Him in prayer. You'll give some vibrancy uh, to your prayer life. But this is a well-known psalm. It is powerful in that it is succinct, but it carries so much um, information. There's so much truth here found in this psalm. Derek Kidner, the Old Testament scholar, writes this about Psalm 8. This psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be, celebrating as it does the glory and grace of God, rehearsing who He is and what He has done, and relating to us, or relating us and our world to Him, all with a masterly economy of words and in a spirit of mingled joy and awe. So Kidner points out this is a really... Um, well-crafted psalm, and of course it is because the Holy Spirit wrote it through the instrumentality of David. But there are four parts of the psalm that I want to, to highlight for you as we walk through it to kind of understand the central theme or the central message and how it applies to our lives. And the first part of the psalm is simply praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, you, uh, same phrase is used in verse uh, nine, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so this is a statement <clears throat> excuse me, of praise. Now there's two parts of this praise I want you to see. First of all, I want you to see the majesty of his name. And again, O oh Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You'll be tired of hearing me say this by the time we get through our study of Psalms. Uh, is the divine name of God. And the name of God is very, very important because God's name represents his character, represents who he is. That's why in the Ten Commandments we see uh, the commandment number three, do not take the Lord's name in what? In vain. Why? Because when you take the Lord's name in vain, you are actually calling into uh, or you are besmirching the character of God because that name represents his character, represents him. So you don't want to demean his name because you are demeaning God at that point. When we baptize people, Jesus told us to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Why? The name represents who God is. They're being, they're being, they're being baptized in light of God's character and nature. And so he begins by exclaiming, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When he says your name is majestic, he is in, in effect saying you are majestic because your name represents who you are. You can't separate the name of God from the character and the attributes of uh, God. And, and he says there uh, in uh, verse 2, 
Well, he says you've set your glory above the heavens, verse 1. Then verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. So the uh, writer here, David, is saying that God has prepared praise for himself, even using the mouths of babies and infants, uh, because he's worthy of praise. It says he's established strength because uh, to 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 stand against his foes to steal those that are opposed to him, the enemy and the avenger. But the, the avenger, this idea of prepared praise is interesting. I want to show you a little a little uh, insight here. Uh, turn over to Matthew chapter twenty one. Matthew chapter twenty one. Hold your place in Psalm eight. Let's begin reading in. Let's begin reading in um, verse twelve. Matthew twenty-one, verse twelve. Jesus, this is on the last week of his life before he's crucified after the triumphal entry. Jesus entered the temple, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, "It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers." And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? They're basically calling you the Messiah by calling you son of David. You hear what they're saying? They're praising you, Jesus. They're, they're, they're saying you are somebody of utmost importance. And Jesus said to them, have you never read, and he quotes Psalm 8, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. This is an astounding reference because Jesus is basically saying that verse that was in reference to the praise that only God deserves is a verse that was speaking of me. So Jesus is in effect, they're saying, I'm God. I'm the one that Psalm 8 was talking about. I'm the one that God prepares praise for because I am God in human flesh. And so we see here the majesty of his name back in Psalm 8. How majestic is your name in all the earth. But not only do we see the majesty of his name, we see the extent of his glory. He says there in verse 1, You've set your glory above the heavens. You've set your glory above. Above the heavens. Now, what is glory? Glory is a sort of a hard concept to understand or wrap your mind or heart around. So I'm going to give you just kind of a kind of a just a definition to, to, to think through when we think about glory. Glory is basically the visible display of God's greatness. The visible display of God's greatness. There were times when God would would manifest his presence among his people at the temple. He would come down over the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant in the, what the Bible calls the glory cloud, the kavod cloud. He would come down and show his greatness. And they would see these, this manifestation of God's presence. And they would tremble in his presence because God was showing that he was near. Same thing happened on the Mount of Sinai when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. He covered the mountain in a glory cloud. It was a, it was a visible display of his greatness. And back in Psalm 8 he says, you have set your glory above the heavens. In other words, you have made your glory 
to be seen, and your glory is overarching. It's even, it's even bigger than the heaven. It's even bigger than the universe. And he's talking here about the, the extent of his glory. I like how Spurgeon says it. Unable to express the glory of God, the psalmist utters a note of exclamation. O Lord, our Lord. We need not wonder at this, for no heart can measure, no tongue can utter the, the half of the greatness of Jehovah. The whole creation is full of his glory and radiant with the excellency of his power. His goodness and wisdom are manifested on every hand. And so the psalmist here, David, is saying, Lord, you are glorious and your glory is big. It's, it's everywhere. It's overarching. He's speaking here of the extent of his glory. So he's praising God, the majesty of his name. The extent of his glory, which leads to the second part of this psalm, and that is perspective. I want to, I want to show you here for a moment how your worship, your recognition of God's greatness, directly affects your daily lives and your thinking and your overall perspective. Look what he says there in verse 3. When I look at, at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon, get specific here, and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him. Keen observation, this is in your notes. Keen observation leads to big picture questions. Keen observation leads to big picture questions. So, so... David goes out and he walks around and he looks around and he's looking at the moon and he's looking at the stars and he's thinking about the heavens and he feels the immensity of the heavens and he begins to think big picture type thoughts. What is man that you're mindful of him? In other words, as he sees how big God is, he feels his own smallness. And, and, and that, that worship, that keen observation leads him to think about these big picture questions. I think a lot of people don't think about eternity or they don't think about the reality of God or the existence of God. They put those big picture questions out of their mind because they don't stop and look around and consider what's all around them, right? People don't stop and look in the sky enough and say, hmm, wonder how all that got there. I wonder what that means for my life. People are so vested in their doing this they never look around. They never consider the grandeur of creation. They never think big picture thoughts about the things that truly matter for life and for eternity. But notice here, David is a keen observer of the created order, and it leads him to think big thoughts. It changes his perspective. Now think about this. He says, I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. So God, I look at it. It's amazing. You made it all. He calls it the work of God's Fingers. And he mentions there specifically the moon and the stars. And I just, just for fun, I did a little bit of research today on, uh, which means I pulled up Google, but I did a little research today on Google and, and uh, I, I, I typed in how many stars are in the observable universe? I mean, how, you know, what, how many stars do we think there are? We, don't, we haven't reached the limits of the universe. Uh, I believe it's because there are no limits, but you know what are the you know what are the uh, what are the number of stars in the universe? So I came across these thoughts using the Milky Way as our model. The Milky Way is our 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 galaxy, right? 
using the Milky Way as a model, we can multiply the number of stars in a typical galaxy, which is 100 billion. The average galaxy has a 100 billion stars. Now think about that. We multiply the number of stars in a typical galaxy by the number of galaxies in the universe, and right now we're saying there's around 2 trillion galaxies. Now think about that. 2 trillion galaxies, and on average, 100 billion stars in each of those galaxies. And, and these aren't pastors and theologians coming up with these numbers. These are scientists. These are folks that are looking through big telescopes and, and trying to figure out what's out there. And so... How many is that if you take 2 trillion by 100 billion? Uh, it basically means there are approximately 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. That almost sounds like a, a grade school kid, you know. I, had, I got 200 trillion billion dollars for my birthday. You know, it just sounds like something somebody would make up, right? 200 billion trillion, we'll get to that in a minute. 200 billion trillion, trillion stars in the universe, or to put it another way, 200 sextillion. And then they write that out by zeros, and it's a lot of zeros. Um, but but the, the article I was reading tried to give us an illustration to figure out how many 200 sextillion is. So here's an illustration. It's about 10 times, now listen to this, about 10 times the number of cups of water in all the oceans of the earth. Think about how many cups of water there are in the ocean. Think about getting a cup, all right? Getting it and going to, going to the gulf and picking it up. How many cups would you be able to get when you take into account the Atlantic Ocean, Pacific Ocean, Indian Ocean, Arctic Ocean? I mean, how many cups would it be? I mean, just an astounding number. Whatever that number is, it would be ten times that. That's how many stars we think are out there. And there's probably a lot more. Because every time we get better telescopes, guess what? We find more galaxies. And every time we find another galaxy, that's another 100 billion stars. I mean, this is mind-blowing. It's breathtaking. And David's looking out at all of that. He doesn't know what we know now. He just knows it's the beautiful night sky, right? And he's going, wow. Wow. His keen observation leads him to say this. What is man that you are mindful of? Of him, which leads to the next truth. Look there in your notes. Our smallness makes his attention all the more extraordinary. My wife and I, we in our family, we we uh, we love we love the beach. In fact, since we've been here, my kids are kind of turned into beach bums, and that's you know I I blame y'all for that. But uh, we love the beach. We love going to the beach. And, and one of the reasons that I love going to the beach is because I can't walk along the beach and not worship. I just can't walk along the beach and not think about God. I mean, just the beauty, the waves, the horizon, you know, the sand. It's just, and I always think about the book of Job where he says, you told the waves they could only come this far. You know, God determines the limits of the waves. And, and uh, it's just beautiful. And, and, and it always makes me feel small, Right? I'm standing there, the, you know, the Gulf or whatever ocean, and it just makes me feel small. And, and that's just the, the oceans on this earth. Think about your smallness in relation to how many? Um, 200 sextillion stars, right? I mean, think about how small we are in relation to all of that. 
And yet David says, you are mindful of me? Your fingers put all this into place? This is the work of your hands? You're that big and you're mindful of you're thinking about David? Little old David? The answer is, yeah, he's thinking about us. His keen observation leads to, to big picture questions. And our smallness makes his attention all the more extraordinary. I love this, this quote from the ESV Study Bible. In fact, I wrote it in the margins of my journaling Bible. It is astonishing that the God who is great enough to have made the heavens can take notice of mere man. But he goes beyond taking notice. He is mindful of man. He cares for him. He cares for us. In fact, he says there, What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? The, the son of man is a phrase to speak of our humanity you know, generations of humanity. Jesus took that phrase and applied it to himself to identify with our humanity because he took on humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But it speaks here of just, the, of, just of, of humans. Humans. Uh, think about how small our corner of the universe is. We're talking about, what's the number again? 200 sextillion stars, and we're just rolling around one of them called the sun, Right? And yet God cares for us. He's mindful of us. In fact, the Bible says he knows our names. He knows how many hairs are on our heads. He knows why the tears roll down our cheek. I mean, think about how much God cares for little old me and little old you. It's amazing. And David is amazed as he just looks up in the heavens. And just kind of a little quick side note, you and I, we need to take time to look around more, don't we? To look up into the heavens and to... To go, you know, walk on the beach and, you know, go, go uh, vacation in the mountains, but come back. Don't go live in the mountains. Come back. I, want you to, I don't want you to leave. But, but, uh, uh, but yeah, go to the mountains and, 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 just, and just be amazed that that's the work of God's hands. And the one who made all that cares about you. David is overwhelmed by this thought, which leads to the third heading, and that is privilege. We talk about praise and perspective, but then David just goes all in on the privilege we have. It says there uh, in verse 5, Yet you have made him, him there stands for humanity, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Uh, there, are, there are advantages um, that, that angels have that we don't have in terms of the things that they see, the places they can inhabit. We are bound to this earth. We're not in the presence of God yet in heaven. You know, we, so we don't experience some of the same things that angels do. So for at this time in our lives, we are a little lower than the angels. We don't inhabit heaven. We are inhabiting um, this earth. And he says, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor uh, this means, and this is in your notes, humans are made in God's image and given a position of honor. It, God has a special place for humanity because he made us. He made us with a plan. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. The Bible says that God made man in his own image. Male and female, he made them in his own image. And so we are the crowning work of God's creation. That's the way the book of Genesis um, uh, unfolds to, to show that God making humans was 
his crowning achievement. So humans are made in God's image and given a position of honor. And this idea of being made in the image of God, Imago Dei, is, is so very important because it means a lot of things. First of all, it means that every human that's ever been made, and I believe that, that happens at the moment of conception, a human comes into being. Uh, there was not a human there. At conception, there's a human there now. And, and, and every uh, human is, is created in the image of God. It means that we have capacity to relate to God, a capacity that the animal kingdom does not have. We have um, immortality in that uh, our soul that's created at the moment of conception will go on living forever in eternity, heaven or hell, but it will go on living forever. And so we have that capacity being made in the image of God. Uh, we have creativity uh, because we're made in the image of God. We can do things like you know create and figure things out and and uh, you know. Um, create things for beauty's sake, and, and we come up with technologies and all of these different things as, as a human race because God's given us the ability to process and think through and apply logic and use materials to, to create things. That's because we're made in the image of uh, God. Um, whenever I see uh, you know, beautiful artwork or someone uh, you know, that... that that sings or plays beautifully, even if they're not believers in Christ, I look at what they're doing and I look at their skill and their talent, I think that's the image of God. The reason they're able to do that is that's the image of God in them. And so this, this idea of being made in the image of God is very, very important. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a position of honor that we hold. And it means that everyone that's ever been uh, conceived, made in the image of God, has intrinsic value and worth. Right? Everyone has value and worth. Life matters. That's why we, as Bible-believing Christians, are pro-life. Uh, from, the, from the womb to the tomb, we are pro-life. We, we, we think that, that human life has dignity and worth and value and should be protected. And so that's all because of what the Bible says about being made in the image of God. Hey, one other kind of quick side note, and I talk about this you know, as, as we go throughout God's Word. Um, but this idea of David saying, you have made him a little lower than heavenly being, crowned him with glory and honor. He's speaking of humanity there, uh, going back to Genesis 1, that means this applies to everyone that's ever been made by God. And that means red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Amen? Everybody. Everybody's ever been made. It's made in the image of God. And so, you know, we, we get caught up in, 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 in racism and prejudice and those sorts of things. And when we find ourselves turning our fury on someone because of the, the way that they look or, or their background or their socioeconomic status or their ethnicity or their language, and we find ourselves disliking them or wishing ill will on them because they are different than us, we are, we are, we are casting our aspersion on someone made in the image of God. And that, that serious business... God, God don't like it. Doesn't like it. Racism is a is a sin, and uh, one that we should uh, let God set us free from if we struggle with it. So humans are made in God's image and given a position of honor. Creation, again, this is in your notes, is proof of a caring Creator who prepared the world for the enjoyment and employment of humanity. Creation is proof of a caring Creator 
who prepared the world for the enjoyment and employment of humanity. So what are some of the big picture issues of life? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Well, the Bible tells us. Back in Genesis, the Bible tells us that he made everything and made humanity to oversee everything, to have dominion over the created order, and to be fruitful and multiply, and live in relationship with God and glorify his name. That's why God made humanity. He gave us purpose and he gave us meaning to enjoy the created order, and he gave us something to do, to oversee the created order. That's what it means that we have dominion over creation. Again, that's found in Genesis chapter one, he says there in verse 6 of Psalm 8, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So let me just say something here. I, I see this trend in, um, in, in our culture. And I want to be careful here because I'm not, I, I don't want to be... Um, I'm not, being, I'm not trying to be caustic or anything of that nature, but I think it's an important point to pull out from here. Um, animals are God's creation. He gives them for our enjoyment. He gives us, I mean, we, we, have, a, we have a puppy right now. I'm not sure I'm enjoying him. Uh, but we have a puppy, and we bought him for the kids, and, and uh, we love our dogs, and we love our cats, and we love our animals. And uh, they're beautiful to look at. I love going to zoos. I love, I've been on safaris in Africa and seen animals out in the wild, and it's awesome. I, you know, I love, to, I love to be out in nature. And uh, they're, they're, animals are very, very wonderful. But animals are under the dominion of humanity. Animals are not the same as humans. They don't have souls. Oh, boy. All dogs don't go to heaven, all right? Um, now, somebody, I get this question all the time. Are there going to be dogs in heaven? Are my pets going to be in heaven? And my answer is, my answer is, if, 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 that's, if that's going to be important for your joy to be maximized in heaven, then God will make it possible because your joy will be maximized in heaven. So that's, that's, my, that's my take on that. You know, the Bible does indicate there will be a new heavens and a new earth. There will probably be animals there. You know, so we, we don't figure all that out. But, but animals are not the same as humans. Okay? They're, they're different. Humans have souls. We're created in the image of God. Animals are not. They're, they're animals. They should not be treated cruelly. We should keep, take care of animals. We should watch out for animals. We should enjoy animals. But they are, but they are not the same as human beings. And, and the reason I say that, and again, I don't want to get political, and I'm not trying to be ugly tonight, but, um, but, but I've seen people in, in, um, with certain ideologies who are, who are ardently pro-choice. And by that I mean they think that, that a, a woman should have the right to terminate uh, a baby in her womb. And that's an ongoing, raging debate in our society. I believe as a Christian that every... A child in a mother's womb was conceived by God himself and is a life of intrinsic value and worth and should be protected. So that's what I believe. That's pro-life. The pro-life position. I feel strongly about that. I believe the Bible teaches that. But I've seen, and I've seen this, some of the same people that are, that are fiercely um, pro-choice will 
will fiercely defend the rights of animals. And I've seen some of the same people fight for the rights of an animal, a whale, you know, whatever, an owl, a spotted owl, some endangered species. And I'll see people fight for that, that animal more than they will for a life in a mom's womb. And it, that's just not the Bible. The Bible teaches that humans are created in the image of God and we are actually given dominion over the animal realm. Now, I, do I believe we, we should want to see species protected? I don't want to see any species go endangered. I think we should, we should be good stewards of the earth and we should, Christians should lead the way in that. We should be grateful for what God has given us. But you, you see the disconnect there? It's like, if, if, you, if you want to take this life in your womb, I'm going to fight for your right to do that, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm more concerned about this certain animal species staying alive than I am about that baby staying alive. And that's just not that's just not a biblical worldview. It's just not a biblical way to look at life. And I know people hold those views. And again, I'm not being ugly and, and I would love to someone would come talk to me. We could talk through that biblically, but uh, but I just think it's an it's an inconsistency in society that comes because they don't understand the Bible. They don't understand what God says about humanity. And they don't understand what God says about the created order and what God says about humanity being created in the image of God. So, enough on that. We are a privileged people, and uh, God's given us the world for enjoyment and employment, to oversee, to exercise dominion. Which, number four, leads to purpose. Let me do this real quick, and we'll be through. Purpose. Why does God give us dominion over the work of his hands? He says, There are all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever pass along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now I want to just kind of go back to Genesis 1 for a minute and talk about um, how God gave us dominion and what happened after that. In Genesis 1.26, we see purpose given. Genesis 1.26, which means we are called by God to exercise dominion over the created order. It's what God calls us to do. To be good stewards of the creation, to create, to preserve, to... Uh, be fruitful and multiply, we're called to exercise dominion over the created order. Purpose given in Genesis 1.26. But that purpose uh, is unfulfilled because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God. They ate the fruit God told them not to eat of. And sin entered the world and it messed up this whole process of man exercising dominion over the created order. In other words... Man, at that point, had to exercise dominion over a fallen creation, which was a big deal. God even said in the Garden of Eden when he talked to Adam and Eve, he said, Hey, uh, listen, from now on, uh, you're going to toil. You're going to toil working the land. It's not going to be easy to, to grow produce and to, and to, and to harvest uh, the, the necessities of life. It's going to be hard because the world will be fighting against you now. You are, you are now trying to exercise dominion over a fallen order. That's why, you know, I have to water the lawn so that grass will grow where I want it to grow, but I have to spray weed killer in the flower bed so it won't grow there. It's like, why can't this grass that's growing here grow over there? The creation is not cooperating, is it? We, we, we are trying to exercise dominion over a fallen creation. So what do we lose at the fall? We lost perfect dominion. We lost immortality. Death entered the world at that point. We lost perfect fellowship with God. Adam and Eve were walking with God in the garden. 
and they had to get kicked out of the garden. That sin separated them from God. Perfect fellowship with God. In essence, when the fall happened in Genesis 3, we lost paradise. Humans were living in paradise, and we lost it when sin entered the world. Warren Wiersbe writes this, People today live more like slaves than rulers. So why aren't we living like kings? Because our first parents sinned and lost their crowns, forfeiting that glorious dominion. Instead of, of, of ruling perfectly over the created order, it's all messed up now, right? Sin messed everything up. So purpose was given, but purpose unfulfilled. But third, the purpose was fulfilled by Jesus over in Hebrews chapter 2. We learned that Jesus earned the right to reign in perfect dominion over the universe. Through his death, Hebrews 2.9, he died on the cross for the sins of the world, defeating sin itself. And because of his resurrection, he rose from the grave, earning the right to rule over the created order. And so Jesus came and did what we could not do. Jesus came and won the right to rule over creation perfectly and to set everything right. We've been struggling with creation. Jesus came to set everything right. So look at that last sentence. Jesus died to undo the curse that humanity and creation is living under. Now he is reigning and bringing everything to its glorious conclusion. So Jesus is now renewing and making everything new. In fact, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Let me show you this and we'll be through. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits, the fallen creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation is, is cursed, it's fallen, it's waiting for something to happen. For the creation was subjected to futility back in the garden. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So here's what he means by that. We live in a fallen world. We've been redeemed by Christ, but we're looking forward to the day when he'll take us home. And we get new bodies and we get to be in heaven forever with Jesus. Amen? Not only that, he's going to make the created order brand new. He'll usher in a new heavens and a new earth, which we will inhabit for all of eternity. He's going to make the world brand new. So in effect, what Jesus is doing right now is he's taking us back to Eden. Before the fall. He's restoring paradise. And in heaven, we'll experience perfectly Psalm 8. Exercising dominion over the created order. Living in perfect fellowship and communion with God. And we will have that privilege because God is mindful of us. He cares about us and made a way through His Son, Jesus, for us to be forgiven and to experience that forever. So that's good news. Amen? So Psalm 8 is about praise and about perspective and about privilege and about purpose. Now, I would take questions, but you're going to start asking me about your pets, and we're not doing that tonight, all right? Thank you for listening. 
We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.